Welcome to Walking Backwards. I'm Brad Gourmet. This week's guest is Jim Bartell. A lot of people know Jim because of his Bartek Focus device, which he makes and sells. But he's been around Steadicam for a lot longer than that. He was at CP for a long time, Cinema Products. And he knows a lot of stuff about it. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of technical stuff, too, which was actually really cool to hear about. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you to Walter Clausen for their ongoing support. They make a lot of great products for the film business, Steadicam included. I own a couple of things, and I love them. And I love them for supporting me and for supporting the Steadicam community. So thank you. If you'd like to check out my Instagram, you can do so at the number one giant robot. And if you'd like to email me, you can do so at walkingbackwardspodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy. So Jim Bartell is here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for giving me an excuse to get out of my garage for a while. (laughs) You are stuck in that garage a lot, building building Bartex. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was, you know, first introducing it and it was a brand new thing, I used to get invites all the time to go to, you know, studios and locations and so guys could try it out. And, yeah. You know, I'd hang around on movie sets. And now, you know, starting about 10 years ago when people would call up, I'd say, so do you have any questions? Nah, I used one of my last three jobs, so I just want to get my own. I was like, oh, right. Okay. Everybody's seen one already. Yeah. I used to get invites because... I was well known for being a well-known moocher of free lunches. So oh. <laughs> guys knew they're like, okay, lunch is at one. So why don't you get here at 1230? You can hang out for a little bit. Then we'll go to lunch. Then you can do your thing. And yeah, I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. perfect. And anybody who shot in Long Beach called me up and like, well, because all of Dexter and all of CSI Miami, everything outdoors except the helicopter shots were shot within about a mile and a half of my house in Long Beach. Because Belmont Shore apparently makes a better Miami than most of Miami does from what I've heard. So uh, Yeah, well, I, I, I did either one or two days on that and definitely one of them was in Long Beach down yeah. there. But I, I forgot it was so close to your house. I probably would have stopped by to say hello. I used to walk my dog and we'd be coming home and I'd have to stop and wait till the shot got finished before they let me cross the bridge. Oh, I right. needed to cross to get back to my house. Yeah, well, they were down there a lot. Yeah, everything outside. Uh, we used to, one of my assistants and I used to watch CSI Miami when it was on during the day. And we'd have a contest to see who could figure out where in Long Beach it was right. shot. <laughs> right, 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 right. And That's I'd funny. see there were more uh, Miami Police Department cars driving around my neighborhood than Long Beach Police <laughs> Department cars. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. <coughs> well, watched, watched Eric film Dexter there one day when my uh, my nephew was in town with his girlfriend. And, oh, you brought him over? Yeah, I said, you want to go see a movie being shot? They're right down the street, so... We watched, walked over and watched Eric shoot for a while. He came over and talked to him, and cool. We showed him his uh, Scorpio wireless follow focus. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's not the most exciting place to be <laughs> a, a set unless you're working. You know, yeah, uh, it gets boring really fast. You know, it's because I've always been interested in film and and uh, movies and television, and I. You know, people would always say how boring it is on a movie set. And I'd think, how can it possibly be boring? And then you went to one. Then I spent three days on Pacific Blue, which was this god-awful USA show about bicycle cops on Venice Beach. Right. Because that's where we did all our product testing. Because Bill Gearhart, who was their Steadicam operator, 
absolutely detested his sights unit. Oh, and yeah. from the first time I brought the first prototype on the set, he said, I will write you a check right now to get the first one. And I said, Bill, I will guarantee you, you get the first one, but I won't take a check because I'm not taking anybody's money until I am satisfied with the product. Because in all my years at Cinema Products, we were always rushing everything. Right out the door as fast as possible and you know we we would send stuff out that we knew had problems mm -hmm. and then charge the customers to fix Full the price. problems no we charge them oh you wanted upgraded to the latest revision oh. to fix the problems that it went out the door with and i just hated that because it's so unprofessional yeah it's uh well, there, I mean, there's a reason CP doesn't exist yeah. anymore, and you do. That had a lot to do with it. Was you, you know, know, and you have a lot more competition than they did. I do now. I didn't for a long time. Now right. there's like, I think there's something like 13 different companies making one kind of follow focus or another. But for really, yeah, for like the first 16 years, it was really me and Preston. Mm -hmm. And Aerie would come out with products, but they would be as expensive as a Preston. And why would you pay as much for a product that's not a Preston when you could pay the same amount of money and get a Preston? So they were always, you know, Aerie, Aerie distributors and Aerie rental houses would have them. Yeah. But that was pretty much it. Individual owners, if you were going to pony up 20 grand to get a follow focus system, you bought a Preston. That was just it. Yeah. I got... All the guys who are new, who yeah. are just starting up. Sure. I even got, like, Larry McConkie bought one just to have a backup. Right. In case his Preston went down, he wanted to have a follow focus to work with that day. And uh, yeah, Lawrence Carmen owned several Prestons for his rental operation. And he bought BFD so he could rent his own Preston out and use the BFD instead because he could get more rental for a Preston than he could get for a BFD. <laughs> and he said, you know... I can pull focus with either one of them. It doesn't make any difference to me. Yeah. And on, we did a demo one time on... Uh, well, it worked great. I mean, I own two of them. Or was it three? Two. Two, okay. Serial numbers 130 and 180. I looked them up. Oh, you did? That's so <laughs> I funny. I still have a record of every single... What year did I buy? It's like 2000. Uh, yeah, it was... two. No, it would have been 2001. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we were doing about 100 a year, and we really... We only shipped like 13 in 1999, and then we really started shipping in 2000. We shipped over 100 a year. Mm -hmm. And for a while, we were shipping 200 a year, but... Then the Chinese discovered there was this... Well, the whole industry really changed when high def came out because it used to be to shoot something on film, a camera body was $100,000 mm -hmm. for a, like a 435 camera body. So nobody thought anything about paying $4,000 for an accessory. But now you can buy a high def camera for under $10,000. So all of a sudden, a $4,000 accessory seems really excessive. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, the Chinese figured out they could mass produce these things and sell them for $1,300. And that really, that really kind of knocked the pins out from under my market because I was always the guy, if you were starting off, I was the guy you went to first. Right. And then when you got big enough and successful enough. And, and a ton of assistants owned them for a long time, too. Yeah. That was. They'd get a little rental and, yep. you know, right. Yeah. When I started, I thought I would sell 100 because that's how many WRC4s there were. And I knew anybody who had a WRC4, which was Cinema Products, would buy, one. would buy one of mine. 
and I designed it to be compatible with all the cables, the motors, everything. Uh, so all you had to do was buy the BFD, and it was originally $1,500. I remember, yeah. So for $1,500, you could get rid of that god-awful WRC4 or the not-quite-as-awful sites and get rid of, because they're both radio-controlled airplane circuit boards inside with yeah. a whole bunch of extra circuitry to make them function. And uh, get something that was really designed right for that task. And right. I figured at this price, maybe some first ACs will start buying their own. Uh -huh. And if that happens, I could probably sell 300. Well, we sold 2,700 total until, again, uh, a certain Asian company discovered that there was this market that they weren't getting. Did they? A piece did of. they? Did they steal your design or no? Okay. Well, did you have a patent? No. And okay. I'm married to a patent lawyer, so trust me, if it had been patentable, it would have You would have done it. Right, 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 right. But, you know, the you market... You just took existing stuff and made it and made it work. And, yeah. you know, the reason I was going to say before, CP had this very exclusive product and they were screwing people, like yep. you were just saying, and and making some junk, too, yep. and, and charging a lot for it. Yep. And what you've done is you made a really good product, didn't take people's money unless it worked, and then offered the best customer service in the business. And your your the BFT works great. It always did. I had a problem once. I had you on the phone in five minutes. And this was at... It would, it would have been 10 or 11 at night, and you called me right back. I was in Spokane, Washington. I remember, and you told me to take one antenna off and put it on the other. Oh, yeah. You had a... I was shooting in a hospital. Yeah, you had a multi-path problem with their signal. And that's, right. That's a but the great thing was you knew how to fix it instantly, which was awesome. But well, anyway... I, well, I've always known that, um, you know, if you guys don't have a piece of your equipment, you're losing money. Because right. you get a rental for that piece of equipment. So every day it's broken is costing you money. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, my philosophy was always repairs come before production. Right. And I would say over 95% of my right, repairs. Right, because we paid already. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. I'd say over 95% of my repairs were repaired and shipped back out the day they came in. Wow. Or they were either re repaired the day they came in, but it might have been too late to get it to FedEx, so they went back the next right, day. Right, right, right. And I always was very conservative with charging for repairs. That To this day, I'd say probably 90% of my repairs are under $150. Yeah. Because nobody likes to keep pouring money into something they've already bought. Of course you know, not. I don't either. Of course and not. I, I, I mean, mostly you're charging for your time at that exactly. point. Exactly. Right? And, you yeah. know, I charge a markup for the parts, but who doesn't? Right. Of course. Of course. So, you know, it was always my philosophy was, you know, treat the customer like you would like to be treated if you were in their shoes. Yeah. And, you know, always like, you know. Cinema products got so bad about a year or two after I left that the the BFD was actually developed because of somebody who is so pissed at cinema products. <laughs> it was a guy from Florida where all good study, comp study cam operators come from. <laughs> at least a lot of them come from yeah. there. <laughs> I don't know if we're good. <laughs> and uh, a guy named David Kimmelman. I don't know if you know him or not. I, I, I knew him a long time ago, but yeah. Uh Right after I left Cinema Products, it was kind of funny because one of the things I was thinking when I left Cinema Products was I'll never have to work on another goddamn wireless follow focus again. <laughs> because uh. the two that they had come up with that I had had to work on were the WRC4, yeah. which was hated. 
and the LC3, which wasn't that popular. Right. was less popular than the WRC4. And the only people that ever bought LC3s were people they forced them on, like their distributor in China. That thing was hated so bad that one customer back east, I forget his name, they, they were really leaning on the sales department to sell these things. Uh-huh. And it was a disaster because they what did... What were they charging for them? Do you remember? Oh, it had to be like $10,000 at least without the motors because they were trying to come up with a product to rival Preston's. Right. And they did... I started the project and then they took it away from me and gave it to some other guys and they did everything I told them not to do. They ruined the packaging... They fired the guy that was doing the software who had almost got it finished and gave it to a guy who had no idea what to do oh, with it. Oh, jeez. And um, it was just an abomination. And I've heard we, about it. We called it. it the Klingon Death Cruiser because it kind of looked like a mock-up of a starship from Enter- from Star Trek. <laughs> so anyway, one customer back east, they'd really been leaning on him to buy one of these things. Uh-huh. And he's like, no. I don't want it. Don't send it to me. Because what they were doing was they would send it to you, charge you for it. And then when you tried to give it back or take it, because they'd say they'd take it back if you didn't want it. But good luck getting the money out of them. I actually wound up as a favor to Ed DiGiulio of Cinema Products fame, giving David Kimmelman two BFDs to recompense him for the the, uh, LC3 he had bought which they wouldn't couldn't give them the money back because they didn't have it. I mean, the company was on the verge of bankruptcy in 99. Right. And Ed felt really bad for David. So he said, look, will you give David, sell us two of these things, give them to David, and we'll pay you for them, which, of course, they never did pay me for them. <laughs> but Ed let me come in in between the time that they closed the doors and then reopened as part of uh, Tiffin. Yeah. He let me come in and he said, take whatever you need to take to compensate yourself for those two units. Gotcha. I walked out with the entire software package for the circuit board layout software they had, which was worth about four grand. So it covered my expenses. Oh, okay. And then some. So I was very happy with it because I used that to lay out all the circuit boards. Oh, you did? Oh, absolutely. Wow. Okay, great. I had a bootleg copy of it, but now I had the original installation discs, which made it a lot easier to (laughs) install. So uh, anyway, this guy back east, um, he comes home and the UPS driver had left a box on his doorstep, which was the LC3. He grabbed it, threw it in his car, chased the UPS driver down and forced him to take it back. Get out of here. Because it was like, I don't want that thing in my possession. So he'd he'd ordered it? No, he didn't. That was the thing, is the sales department was trying anything they could So they're like, we're going to send you one. You're going to love it, and then you'll buy it. And then if you don't, we'll give you your money back. And everybody was like, no, I don't want one. Right. And he he didn't want one so bad, he chased (laughs) the delivery man down and forced him to take it back. Oh, my God. That's funny. Yeah. But, that, you funny. know, that was all that was another part of, you know, we had an idea of how we wanted to do it, but we hadn't even made it work yet. And they'd already done the packaging and put it into production. So before we actually had a working unit, they'd already spent three hundred thousand dollars tooling for it and making parts for it and, and you know, right. buying uh 
components for it and all of that. And it's just like, I will, that was the thing really that broke the, the straw that broke the camel's back with, I will never take a dime from a product or sell one until I'm confident it's what the customers want. Right. And it works. It worked so well that people were buying them sight unseen. You know, people were calling me up and saying, I, I want to get on the waiting list because we had a waiting list for years. I was on it. Yep. I, I, you know, you mentioned David Kimmelman. I actually think the first time I ever saw Bartek was on, was with David Kimmelman on a music video. I'm pretty sure. Well, the way that David got involved in all of this is after I left Cinema Products, I was doing it. I was consulting theoretically, but I was doing anything for money. Sure. And David had a WRC4 and those things broke with frightening regularity. And uh-huh. every time it'd break, he'd send it to me. I'd fix it and send it back to him. So after about... The fourth go-round, David said, I got to get something better than this. And I said, well, buy a Sites. And he said, I don't have $20,000 to drop on a Sites. And it's not much better. Well, it was was better than the WRC4. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And I said, um, well, Crozio in Germany has a new little single channel unit called the Fox. (laughs) I've heard really good things about. So why don't you... It's got to be cheaper than the the site, than Preston. So he went over to uh, whoever was his dealer and he called me back and he says they want $5,000 for that thing and I said well hell I could build one for 500 I was wrong but only by about $150 wow so I just started thinking about you know all the things I'd learned since I left Cinema Products about you know radio modules that were mm-hmm. available and, and how to program these uh, what are called PIC CPU chips where you can get everything in one chip for $3. It's got the RAM, the ROM, the CPU chip, the A to D converter, everything built into one chip for, right. you know, five bucks. Right. And I thought, you know, if I just couple this with this and this, I can make a whole radio control system f- really cheaply. And yeah. it, it all went together unbelievably quickly. And hmm. I wrote all the software in a week. You wrote the software. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. The, the software is remarkably minimalist. I, mm. I, it's in assembly language, which is uh, cumbersome to write in, but executes really fast and takes up very little space in the code. So I gotcha. wrote all the uh, software in a week. I designed all the circuitry in about two weeks. Mm. And I had a working prototype in less than a month from when I started off on it. Really? Wow. Yeah. And then... Don Wetzel, the guy who made the M1, who had yeah. been my boss at Cinema Products, he said, "I'll oh, design." Know that. Yeah, he said, "I will uh, design the housing for it at no charge if you'll let me manufacture the housings for you." Mm. And the idea of like no charge sounds good to me. <laughs> sure. And he did. It, it turned out over the long run probably to have hurt me because he never delivered housings fast enough. I mean, I was always always well, waiting for parts. he's known for that. He was, yeah. Um, Don was the best mechanical designer I've ever met in my life and the worst businessman I've ever met in my life. Is he is he still around? No, or? he died a year ago July. Oh, he did. Yeah. Well, I'm was, sorry to hear that cuz I spoke with him multiple times and he always seemed like a very nice he guy. He was a great And he was guy. true to his word as far as money went. Yes. He promised me a motor on a date that a year later I finally was like enough already and I got my money back. Yeah. But he sent it and when he said he sent it and I got the money four days later, you know, whatever, whatever it was. So he wasn't a crook or anything. No, he no, just was he, not. He didn't really care about money. 
he loved to design things. Right. That was it. That's what he would spend. And the M1 motor it turned out to be something good. But oh yeah. I I never owned one because I had it on order for so long. Yeah. Yeah. It took from the time he said he was going to do it till he finally did it was about a year and a half. Right. And, and he I came think, up with a great motor, but right. his customer service was, you know, for repairs was horrible. Well, you're definitely the one that told me about the M1 motor. Yeah. I never blamed you for it, but I did call you a couple of times going, I've tried to call this guy. What's the deal? You're like, I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I haven't heard from him. You know, I, I, I can honestly say I've never really had a dissatisfied customer, but I've Everybody who ever called up and yelled at me called up and yelled at me because Don wouldn't return their calls. And I would answer my phone. Right. So after, you know, they tried calling Don for a week and Uh sending him 30 emails, they'd call me up and start screaming at me. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, when he had, for a while, he had two companies, which gave him more personnel. And he could pull people from the boom pole company to work on his motor stuff. Mm-hmm. Then everything went smoothly. He made what were those boom poles called? He made loon booms. Right. Yeah, because they were pretty highly regarded. Right. They're great. They right. were probably the best boom pole ever made. But wow, um, it's a very competitive business. Yeah. And Don went when he had to let the other guy who was doing the boom poles go. That pretty much spelled the end of it because now he was trying to do everything himself. And what I didn't know until recently was that his health was failing. Mm-hmm. He had diabetes, mm. and it's really—I uh, didn't realize his eyesight was going. He oh, lost feeling in his feet. Oh no! And I mean, when Don was healthy, that man would work a hundred hours a week without thinking about it. He never worked less than 60 hours a week. He didn't really like to do anything except right. design stuff. That was his life. Yeah. But when his health started to go and he couldn't do it anymore, mm. then, you know, and then it right. just became this downhill Well, starting spiral. your own company, too, I mean, it, it relies on you working all those extra hours, yeah. especially when you're the only one doing everything. Like. Yeah. Well, it, the, the problem was he got screwed every time he started a company with somebody else. He got screwed by the somebody else. Oh. And it made him very defensive about everything. Sure. And then it was, you know, like I was trying to get him to authorize somebody else to do repairs mm. because, you know. Repairs were taking were, forever, too. There right? were repairs that were in his shop for over a year. Oh, boy. And I said, look. You know, this is becoming a real problem. I, you know, these guys, I You're know, will like to do this. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he was like, no, I don't want anybody working on my product. I'm like, but you hate doing repairs. Why would you not want anybody else to work on your product? And he went, well, you got a point. I'll think about that. But of course, he never did, and nothing changed. Right. And what happened? It's one of those things. It's like if you don't do this, you're not going to have a product to sell. Like, exactly. <laughs> so, but you just you couldn't talk to him about it. Right. He just wouldn't listen. And if you tried to push him, he got angry, and then you know it just went down. A true artiste. There. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened uh, was about a year ago. It was the week before Fourth of July, um, 2017. I was waiting for some parts from him. And he called me up and he said, uh, I'm really sorry. I haven't been able to work for three weeks. I've been too sick. And he started describing his symptoms to me. And I said, Don, you've got to get in and see your doctor. And he said, well, my doctor's on vacation till next week. And I said, you can't wait. 
And, you know, it was to the point where he might not be able to get out of bed to answer the phone. Oh, my. And I said, look, if I call and you don't answer, I'm going to think you're unconscious and I'm going to call the police and have them come out and check on you. He goes, no, 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 don't call the police, don't call the police. So this was on a Wednesday. And on Friday, he said, well, I'm in my doctor's office and one of the other doctors here has agreed to look at me so you can stop worrying about me and I'll call you tonight and let you know what they tell me. And I said, great, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Well, that night, his neighbor, who was the guy who had driven him to the doctor's office, said they took one look at him, threw him in an ambulance. Oh, my. Drove him from Big Fork, where he lived in Montana, to Whitefish, which was the biggest town nearby, did emergency surgery on him. What was wrong with him? Uh, he had a severe abdominal infection. Oh he my. actually had gangrene. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, they went in and took out as much infected tissue as they could. But they said, if we take out any more, he'll die. But if we leave what we've left in there... It might kill him, too. He's probably going to die anyway. But this is the only chance he's So got. he'd gone weeks and maybe even months with this problem. It had been at least a month. Because I knew other people who had been telling him a month before to go see the doctor. Oh, my. But that's, that's a shame. Yeah, it really was. But it was just, you know, thinking back over it, I think what his mindset was, was if I get sick and I have to go into the hospital for a long time, I'm going to lose my house, which was where he ran his business out of. Right. He, he'd bought this house on one of these grass air strips and one of these developments where they make a grass runway. Oh, like and then a fly-in neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. And he was using the aircraft hangar part as his machine shop, uh, which was perfect because it gave him his house and his shop all in one building. Sure. And um, But, you know, he never put anything away for a rainy day. And it, if he had to stop working for any extended period of time, he was going to lose the house. So I think he just thought, well... I'm just going to stay at home and hope I get better. And he didn't. So, but he was still the best mechanical designer I've ever seen and the worst businessman. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Well, that's the, the story of Don Wetzel, I guess. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know any, I didn't even know he yeah. was gone. Yeah. That's too bad. But as of last, well, but anyway, it was David Kimmelman's complaining about the, the WRC4 that inspired me to do the BFD and everything came together on it huh. really quickly. And everybody I showed the prototype to uh, said, yeah, I want one. Put me on the list right away. And I did a uh, one of the first big demos I did after we did our field testing on Pacific Blue was uh, Hollow Man, which was that movie with uh, Kevin, Bacon. Kevin Bacon. I remember. Yeah. And I knew Mark Moore, who was the Steadicam operator, really well. I'd actually fixed Mark's WRC4 once or twice. Mm. And Mark calls me up and he says, I hear you got a new follow focus coming out. How come you haven't told me about it? And I said, well, we're, we're just finishing up with the development, just getting ready to put it into production. And he said, well, can I see it? And I said, sure. And he said, okay, we're shooting this movie at, well, it was Sony in Culver City. So I said, okay, I'll bring it by. So I drive over there, and they've got that big multi-story parking structure, which I always wound up parking on the roof because it was always the only parking left. And there was this huge wooden construction bolted to the side of it. And I thought, oh, they're finally expanding this damn thing to get some more parking. It turned out that big wooden construction was the elevator set 
for the the finale of the movie, which takes place in an elevator shaft. They oh, really? Okay. built a three-story tall elevator shaft. Oh, that's funny. Bolted right to the side of the parking structure. Oh. <laughs> so I go in, and it's the most of the movie's shot in this underground laboratory, which is all these, like, interconnected tunnels. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking around in there. It was a really cool set, but I noticed there's all these like gutters on both sides of the walkways and there's pumps at the bottom of these gutters and i said what's going on he goes oh there's going to be this big finale where the sprinkler systems go on mm-hmm. and they had this big water tank inside so they could collect all the water from the sprinkler systems and pump it back up into the tank so sure. they could just keep recirculating the water mm-hmm. and i walk in and mark's in there and he says okay this is uh todd my first ac todd Schlopey. And he says, Todd's going to be the guy using this, so I want him to evaluate it. And Todd was at first very standoffish. Mm-hmm. And I think what it was is when Mark told him what it cost, Todd thought, oh, it's got to be a piece of garbage because nobody can build a good follow focus for right. $1,500. Right. And he took it and he started playing with it. And, you know, I walked him through the calibration and we set it up on Mark's rig and he was like, eh. Can we can we have it for a day or two? And I said, sure, you can keep it till the end of the week, and uh, let me know what you think. I'm I'm anxious for any feedback because we'd done, gone through the first prototype, and this was the pre-production unit, which was exactly the same as the production units because by then we'd put everything into it that we wanted to change. Right. And um, I think I had one of those at one point. For I think you might you have, have had me. the original prototype. I think yeah. you might have sent it to me just for a few days or something. Yeah. yeah. And, anyway, go on. Sorry. And. Uh, they called me the next day, and Mark says, we want to order three of them. And I said, three? He goes, yeah, I want two, and Todd wants one. <laughs> Todd's since become one of my best customers and a really good friend, that he owned two of his own BFDs as a first AC and took them with him on every movie. I got a bunch of pictures of them on my website on Wanted and, uh, God, what was the other one? G.I. Joe. He did that, and you know he does. Oh, um, Children of Men. Oh yeah, he did. Oh, that. he did that. Yep. Dave Emmerichs was the Steadicam operator because by then Todd and Mark were doing things independent of each other. Uh-huh. But Dave Emmerichs did a camera, and there's a scene of Dave running with the camera on his shoulder. Wait, on on Children of Men? I think so. Yeah. I think you're thinking of the wrong movie. Oh, because that be. was a guy. I think his name is George Richmond. Oh, you know, I'm confused. That movie's all handheld. Uh, God, what is it? Transformers. Oh, That's what it okay. Was. It was Transformers. Dave Emmerich's. How are you confusing I'm Transformers <laughs> with Children well, of Men? Well, similar plots, you know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got gotcha. you. So, no, yeah. I was wondering why they would hire an American first to do a movie yeah, in England. England and I, yeah. I would see, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. You. Anyway, yeah, I've sold a lot of BFDs in England and Europe, too. No, I know. I understand that, yeah. And I actually taught... In Asia, too, I know. Oh, yeah. I had my first overseas distributor was in South Korea. Oh, okay. And they've bought lots of them for over Are you there. still selling a lot? Not a lot. A few here and there. Okay. Enough to make enough profit to keep the business open. Okay. But part of the problem is every BFD I've ever built is still out there working somewhere. And they work. And you can go on the Steadicam forum anytime you want and buy a used one because there's usually two or three used ones for sale. And the original design we made from 99 through 2004, and the only reason we changed it is one of the components I designed into it originally was obsoleted the month I completed the design. 
Oh, so really? I bought up every single one I could find, which was like 430 of them. Oh, and so when you ran out, you had to switch. I had to redesign it to use a different part. That's funny. And by then, some other parts were available, so we were able to go from 10-bit to 12-bit, which gave it more resolution, which made it nicer, and actually made it cheaper to manufacture. Oh. And a little more reliable, so we changed it. But every BFD I've ever built is still in use somewhere. I mean, yeah. nobody's ever destroyed one, and God knows they Oh, I'm tried. sure somebody's destroyed one. Uh, Will Eichler in Michigan was filming a car commercial at the General Motors test track, mm -hmm. and they had a crane on a camera truck with one of the stabilized heads, you know, filming the car, and the guy driving the camera truck misjudged his distance and ran the camera, or camera platform into a guardrail at 30 miles an hour mm -hmm. and just spread an airy 435 over about 100 feet of test track. Right. BFD still worked. Everybody's like freaking out. Will walks over, looks down at his BFD, turns the knob, lens oh. motor moves. He goes, I'm good. <laughs> the lens is the lens is yeah, 50 the lens feet back is 50 on the ground. Feet away in like 10,000 pieces. Still works. But the motor still works. Will's like, I'm good here. And he did send it in because it sanded off part of the corner of the receiver. And he asked me to put a new one on so it didn't look so chewed up. But other uh -oh. than that, they've fallen in the ocean. They've fallen off bridges. Oh, really? You've had some that go in the ocean and then oh, you yeah. repaired them? Absolutely. Did they send them to you in fresh water? No, they just sent them to me. Wow. I just sprayed them with uh, circuit cleaner board and hit them with uh, canned air to blow the stuff off. They probably, after like seven or eight years, developed some corrosion the problems. The salt will. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah. and I, I mean, the salt, and like, as soon as you take it out of salt water, it's like 20 minutes and it's hurting yeah, The right. thing about circuit boards is now because they're, the way they manufacture them, they coat them in this uh, 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 spray on coating. Mm. And it does a great job of protecting everything from salt water. Mm. So the only thing that really corrodes is the solder itself, and it takes a long time for the corrosion to eat its way into the point that it becomes unreliable. Right. You could just add more solder anyway, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or you know, and I and fresh water won't really bother it at all, right? Like no, once it not dry, at all. You not could at all. you could drop it and pull it out, dry it for a day, open it, and maybe yep. even not even open it, maybe just. You might want to open it up and hit it with some candy because what happens is the water gets Pools. underneath some of the components and oh, it's yeah, hard okay. to get out. Okay, yeah. But, you know, it's just like a cell phone. If you drop it in fresh water and dry it out, it'll work just fine. Right. So, yeah, you know, they've they turned out to be really bulletproof, but they do keep going. Yeah. So there's so many of them out there now that you can pick up a used one. For not much money. Right, that's your competition. And, yeah. And there's no analog motors made anymore, so I had to go digital. And oh, right. I got the digital receiver from Mark Alfonso at uh, PLC Electronic Solutions, and we started going digital, but that raised the price because mm. digital motors are more expensive, the digital receivers are more expensive. I noticed that. You, you, it, it, it's 2100 bucks. That was the original, well, that was the final price for the analog transmitter and receiver. Oh, okay. And then when we went digital it went up to 2760 but that doesn't cover a motor no i understand that yeah. but you know you can buy well that makes more sense because i was like how are they still selling them for 20 2100 i mean for what five years it was 1500 at least that, a yeah. few right it was five for the first three or four years it was 1500 because i know it. i paid 1500 for both yeah. of mine but i think the second one the price was about to go up or i had reserved it before the part or something I know you promised me it wouldn't go up. Yeah, we went from fifteen to eighteen fifty, and then right. eventually we went to twenty one hundred, and that was the last price. 
we charged. Gotcha. For the analog system. And then, you know, they ju- we just, it was just a matter of I couldn't get parts out of Don fast enough to build them fast. We had a, four years ago, we had a six-month waiting list. We had really? 60 units on back order. I was selling to China for several years in as fast as I could make them, they would buy them. Huh. And then... I remember you telling me about a guy who used to buy in bulk... I think you ended up having a problem with the guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to go into big detail if you don't want to. There but was one guy, that the only guy I ever... This guy was so... You basically gave him credit, right? Um, or something? Hmm. What was it that happened? Because sure he would which... buy 10 and then go to... Wouldn't he go to China and sell them there? Well, I had I had two distributors in China who were buying like 10 at a time. I think this is before that, though, because this guy definitely came to your house. Oh, there was one guy from India. Oh, maybe it was India I was but, thinking of. No, he <laughs> he was not a good person, and he's the only distributor I've ever cut off. Right, I remember you telling me something oh, about yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I got it. Because he was always trying to basically not pay for the order when he received it. And then he'd go over and sell it, and then he would pay me for it. But I don't work that way. He's I mean, trying to, you're, he's making you front money exactly. for him. He was right. trying to, he was trying to, as we say, not have any skin in the game. So right. basically. He's taking zero risk. Exactly. Of course. So he'd give me a check and tell me not to deposit it. He'd give me a credit card number and tell me not to charge to it. So he was giving me something, but it was never anything I could use. And I finally, I had it with him one night. I had four systems. And I just, in it, he would always, you know, come by my house at like 10 o'clock at night. <sighs> and I find and one night he just kept calling me. Oh, we're going to be a little bit late. Oh, we're going to be a little bit later. Oh, we're in San Pedro. We took a wrong turn. And every time I'd speak to him, I'd say, okay, I got the stuff here. You can pick it up when you get here, but you're going to pay for it when you pick it up. You understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. Uh-huh. So he gets to my house at 10 o'clock at night and he hands me a credit card and says, okay, Here's a credit card, but don't charge to it. And I lost it. I said, that tears it. I said, get out of my house. Get off my property. We're not doing business anymore. <laughs> and he showed up at my house at like 9 o'clock the next morning. He was kneeling outside my front door with a stack of $100 bills to pay me. And I just opened the door, looked down at him, and slammed the door in his face. Because I had so many back orders back then. I hey, you don't need, need to be messing business. around with this guy. Yeah. And then, you know, after I actually... And he had the money. Yeah. He's just being a prick. Like yep. That's exactly what it was. And it turned out, after I actually finally had to call the police to get him to go away. Stop oh, really? harassing me, yeah. Oh, because he kept trying to buy him. Because he was probably making tons of money. Sure he was. And I get a call from a guy at one of the distributors here in L.A. that I've known for years. Great guy. And he says, I got this guy in my office and and he wants to buy four of your systems, but he says you won't sell to him. Will you sell them to me? And I said, well, I would have, except they've already been shipped to China for what to one of my distributors over there. And he, he's, he starts telling me the story that this guy has been banned from half of the distributorships in L.A. because he's such a pain in the ass right? that nobody wants to do business with him. Is he an them. Indian guy, an American yep. guy? He's an, he's Indian, an Indian guy. guy. Is it a cultural thing? Is that the way things no, work I've done, over there? No, I've done business with lots of Indian people. Who okay. Abs- this guy's just a prick. It right. doesn't make any difference what... Right. I mean, his, his procedure was every time he saw you, the first words out of his mouth were, I need a better price. I mean, literally, I have to have a better price. Uh-huh. No matter what price you gave him, right. he'd He's see just if a he... That's, that's just the shit. way he worked. Right. I mean, 
his modus operandi was lean on your distributors every single chance you get right and you know till they either throw you out or give you a better price and i was right. already giving him a better price than anybody else and i hated dealing with him it's just like you know what goodbye you know that's the problem with being a nice guy jim yep is you end up trapped into these relationships with people you're like you don't want to be mean to but then you're like me when you lose it you lose it yeah and i saw him a couple of months later at uh cinegear uh -huh. He's like, hey, how you doing? I said, hey, fuck you. Get the hell away from me and don't ever speak to me again. And I just walked right on by him. And I had to do that like three times right. before he finally stopped trying to talk to me. Oh, God, that guy was a pain in the ass. But, you know, my the guy who called me about him said, oh, yeah, he's notorious. Otto Nemens won't let him on their property anymore. He's right. banned from doing business with them. Right. And he said, what I do is whichever one of my salesmen's on my shit list, I make him deal with the guy. Because <laughs> he's such a... But he bought... One year, he was my single biggest customer. How many did he buy? Probably 30, 20 or 30. Because what he does That's is... That's a lot when you're only making a couple hundred yeah. a year. What he does is he goes over to India, he takes orders from people for camera equipment, uh -huh. he comes over here, he gets the absolute rock bottom best deal he can. He beats on you like yeah. an asshole. Right. And then he goes back to India and sells this stuff. And that's why he was so anxious to get those units from me. Because he already, promised them all. Yeah, he'd already promised them And it somebody. probably made you pretty happy to know that oh. he, they were like, well, yep. screw this guy too. You yep. know? I really hope it cost him a lot of business because he was <laughs> such a dick. And there's no reason for it. No. And every time I had to interact with him, it was unpleasant. I mean, every single time. Well, look, if you're going to beat on somebody about price like that, yeah. and look, I've, you know, I've negotiated plenty of times and, and people don't always like it. Sure. Uh, you know, we're all trying to do the best for ourselves. And that's fair. But like, you got to pay your bills on time. Yeah. You know what I mean? You get like, if, if, if you're getting a great deal off of somebody and it's a good relationship for you, you have to pay them. Yeah. You have to respect them, you know? Sure. If you're paying full price, you can get away with a little more, maybe. Yeah, right? but, you know, I, I literally probably had 30 units on back order at that time. So right. people, I don't need people who are paying up front full price, right. why am I going to make them wait so this jackass can screw me out of an extra $200 yeah. and then make me wait three months for payment for it? I mean, you know, Right, you didn't need him. No. <laughs> <laughs> really didn't. And then I, you know, I found out he was notoriously hated by practically everybody in, in Southern California, at right. least anybody he did business with. And it's like, I guess I'm not just being a dick. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's always nice to know. Yeah. So the, the Chinese ones that are being made, are those basically the same as a Bartek or a BFD? Um, it's funny. You always call it a BFT, BFD. And everybody else calls Everyone it Everyone calls it a Bartek. And for a long time, I called it a BFD, but everybody says Bartek so much. Well, you didn't see the back of my shirt, did you? Oh, wait. He's showing me the back of his shirt. I said BFD. <laughs> I saw a shirt one time. Somebody was wearing it. It said BFD. And I said, fuck, is somebody knocking off my shirt? And I got closer. It said Bakersfield Fire Department. And I went, oh. no, I guess not. <laughs> Yeah, don't mess with that guy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I just, you know, BFD, big fucking deal. That's Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, but everybody else calls it a Bartek, so. Well, it's a little, it rolls off the tongue a little yeah, quicker, I, I think, guess. I, think. I guess. But I mean, it's interchangeable. Either one works, sure. right? Yeah. Um, no, but the Chinese ones, are they like oh. a knockoff or? Well, you know, there's nothing. Because the face you made when you said it, 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 it didn't, you didn't seem too pleased with them. Well, there, there's nothing magical about, you know, any yeah. of these units. Howard Preston didn't 
patent his either because there's nothing patentable about it. There was one aspect of mine I couldn't have pat I could have patented, but it was like I know how much money it takes to get a patent because I'm married to a patent attorney and yeah. <clears throat> I'm not making her work for me for free. Right. And it's like my protection was the fact that no manufacturer at the time could have manufactured a product like mine at the price I did because I had almost no overhead. Right. I didn't have any You're employees. You're working out of your garage. Working out of my house. Doing all the work yourself, yeah. right. So, you know, how is any company that's, you know, like Cinema Products or Preston or, well, not Preston, they were doing it, but they charge a lot more money. <laughs> yeah, well, or it's, a Panavision. it's a different product yeah. too, really. Yeah. Or Panavision or Aerie. Nobody's ever going to be able to market a product this cheaply. So, yeah, because their margins are going to be razor thin. Yeah, the amount of money it's I not could, worth it to them. The amount of money I could make off of a hundred of them was real nice. The amount of money they could make off of a hundred of them at that price would be nothing because right. they could make a product. So, my price was my protection. I didn't need to patent it, mm -hmm. and um, I so I never bothered. But the units that are coming out today that are all everything's digital, so mm -hmm. that actually makes it easier to manufacture and to design if everything is digital once you get the individual you know startup costs out of the way it's you just you know these guys already have assembly lines they're making cell phones on and right. consumer products but the thing about the the products that are being made today is um they have no customer service for the most part most of them oh the ones in china the ones that are being made in china if you can even find some place to send it somebody one of my customers who bought one of mine after buying one of theirs said, yeah, I bought it. I had a problem with it. I didn't like it. So I never uh, heard from them I again. sent it back. They sent it back to me, said you scratched it so you can't return it. They didn't even bother to fix what was broken on it and mm. just sent it back to him still broken. So and good that's luck. kind of representative of the way that end of the market works. Yeah. So, you know. Forget about getting a reliable product that somebody stands behind. And and some of the decisions, like one of the units doesn't have interchangeable batteries. It's like a cell phone. When the battery goes dead, you have to plug it in and charge it before you oh can use it again. You're kidding me. No. Because I went <laughs> at Cinegear last year, I went by to look at one and it was set up on a camera. But they were it at wasn't Cinegear? Working. Oh, yeah. And I said their distributor was at Cinegear, whoever sells them in the United States. So and the I, comedy is you could probably charge it through the camera, like with a with a um, if it had a USB port, right? On with it, maybe. the USB, well, like F fifty fives have a USB built into it. I think a lot of them, a lot of people have cables now. To well, you. they didn't even but think. You, but the funny part is you're charging your your cable to your with your wireless controller to the camera <laughs> because you have to charge it. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, the thing was they didn't even think that far ahead because when I walked up to use it, it was dead, and I said, "What happened?" He goes, "Oh, the battery went dead in the handset, and we forgot to bring the charger along." So they forgot to bring yeah. the charger, and it had a special custom charger. Of course, it did. And so, so you know, they couldn't even demo it. Yeah, I mean, when I started the BFD, it was originally going to have rechargeable batteries because everybody did. Preston did, WRC yeah, four yeah, did, yeah. sites all had unique rechargeable batteries, and I had found some really nice rechargeable batteries I was going to put in the BFD. 
And But to get the prototype into the field as quickly as possible, I said, oh, fuck it, let's put a 9-volt battery in it, and we'll use that for now. And it worked great, and it lasted so long. Well, one of the first people to come by and look at it was Kenji Luster. Remember uh-huh. Kenji? Kenji came by, and he said, oh, great, man, 9-volt batteries. We can steal them from the sound guys when they go to lunch because they use them in their wireless microphones. Or just ask them for one. Yeah. Because they'll always give you one. Or just take one of the ones they're throwing away. Cause That's they true, because they're them. always throwing those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they're a half-charge on one of those batteries will run the BFD for like nine consecutive hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And the BFD has battery saver, so if you set it down and it isn't used for like eight minutes, it goes into standby mode and then it will run it for 30 hours. So, And I was like, oh, great. Fuck the rechargeable batteries. We're going with nine volts. So much easier. everybody And then you don't have to deal with selling the batteries, too, and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was always happy. At first, I was super worried about like, you know, a 36-pack of nine volts, you know, or whatever. And then, and then, you know, hardly ever needed one. I think by the time I did use five or six of them, like half of them were bad because they'd been in my case for so long, you know? One of the first people who tested it, it was either uh, Peter Abraham or Alec Jarnigan, Uh said, I said, how is the battery life? Did it hold up? They said... We used it for five days, and we never changed the battery. Right. And I was like, oh, well, I guess that's the answer to that question. Yeah. Nine volters are doing just fine. They were. They and were I'd throw one in with each unit when I sent it out. So. Oh, that's so you, when you pulled it out of the box, you could. It had a battery right there. Yeah, yeah. You would know if it worked or not, at least. Yeah. yeah. Every Of everything I've ever designed in 30 years of being an engineer, everything clicked on that one. I mean, everything just went. The original prototype was so close to the final product. I mean, all the changes we made were basically cosmetic and mm-hmm. to make it cheaper to manufacture. Mm. But the original prototype, Garrett Brown called me up in like 2000 or 2001, must have been 2000 because he was doing the Olympics. Mm. And it was the Olympics where he had all the, the dive cam and the Moby cam and the swim cam. And he said... I think uh, that was Melbourne or Sydney, Australia? Yeah, it was the one after Barcelona. So yeah, it would have been it would have been Melbourne, I think. No, it wasn't Atlanta '96. No, it was before. Well, no, it was after that because I didn't have the. BFD but you said in 2000. And, yeah, no, no, no. So I think that yeah, I think well, it was Australia. But anyway, anyway. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so Garrett says I, I need a, a wireless follow focus for one of the cameras I'm developing, but I've already poured a ton of money into this thing. So is there anything you can do? to get me one at a, a reduced price. And I said, well, I've got the original prototype, and the only thing that's wrong with it is the uh, receiver is about one and a half times the size of a normal receiver. Mm. So it's a little bigger than I wanted it to be, but sure. we've reduced it for the production units. But if you're not going to use it, it on works, a steady cam, right. and yeah, it's the same circuitry. I said, if you're not going to use it on a steady cam, then it doesn't really matter. And he says, yeah, I got no problem with that at all. So I sold him the original prototype, the pre-production number one unit for like half price. That unit was still in use until about a year ago. Really? Yeah, that it got sold. Garrett sold it to Mike O'Shea, who sold it to somebody else, who sold it to somebody else, who sold it to Tony Foresta, who has this thing called Cine Rover. He's got that little reconfigurable dolly for Steadicam work. Okay. And they had it, and when it would break... No, he's out of Orlando. Well, he's also out of here. He's got oh, he operations in both places. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Oh. And finally, after about a year, about a year ago, they sent it in, 
and it had broken and some jackass had tried to repair it and had lost some of the pieces of it. Uh oh. And I said, I can't fix this because the pieces that are in this are unique to this They're unit. They're custom pieces, yeah. right. They were only built for this prototype. We never made any more of them. Right, I don't have right. a machine shop, so I can't recreate them. There's no drawings for any of this stuff. Don <sighs> did it all in his head. All right. But, you know, that original unit, that original So prototype, you have it now or no, you send I it back No, I sent it them? back to them oh. and I said, I don't know what you want me to do with this, but, you know, you can have it. And uh, believe it or not, that guy I was talking about from India, he owned it. So at the got, time, at the time, they sold it to him, and now he had a piece that he couldn't use because they'd lost pieces out of it. Wait, wait, wait! So he bought it after it was. He inoperable. bought it from Tony Foresta at Cinerover after it was and, inoperable. No, uh, it was operable when he got it. So oh, so he's the moron. One of who his did technicians. It. Oh, got it. Opened it up. Oh, good. Took it apart and then lost the pieces out of oh, it. Oh, good. So yeah, if somebody had to eat that thing, I'm glad it was him. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've got one or two stories I wanted to tell about when we were first doing our testing. Well, well one, the other one, do we have time? Or yeah, we yeah, we have plenty of time, but let's let's get another beer first. Oh, all right. Do you, would you like another beer? I would love another beer. Okay, we'll we'll get one. And we'll... Get, get the beer sound effect queued up. So from when oh, Baldwin good point. was here, the fake <laughs> the fake beer opener. At the, oh, By good. the way, I'm sorry, I have no stories that involve dildos or margarita machines. So we're just that's all right. To, one of each of those is plenty for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll get a drink. We'll be right back. Okay. You were going to tell me stories. Um, I cut you off. About early development testing of the BFD. So it's 1999. Uh, David Kimmelman in Florida persuades me via begging that there's a market for a inexpensive replacement for the WRC4 and the site's wireless follow focuses. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I can see that because I know how much people hate those things. Right. And if I could make something that was really reliable that was designed from the ground up for this job because you know if if you tear a sites apart if you tear a wrc4 apart you will find radio control airplane parts inside mm -hmm. and i said if i can find the right combination of parts we could do this inexpensively but really make it do the job rather than take something that was never intended to do this and try and make it do it right so we built a prototype took me about well the problem is of course I'd been getting no consulting work, so I had plenty of time, I thought, to work on it. So I started in like January or February. I went to a Steadicam workshop and told people what I was doing and saying, look, if you got any ideas about this, let me know what you would like, what it doesn't need, etc." So I started working on it and I got all the circuitry done and the software in about six weeks from start to finish and it worked really good. I was really happy with it. So we put a prototype together. So I've taken it to Hollow Man, and um, you know they loved it. They mm -hmm. were like, "Our only problem with it is you said we wouldn't be able to get one for six months, and we can't have that. We need one right away." Right. right and right. I'm like, "Well, there was one guy on the list. I told him because he was one of the first people to test it, and he's on the list for one of the first ten, which is all we're going to get out this year." But maybe if I tell him he can have the original prototype, he'll be happy with that and he can keep it until, and you know, I bumped him up to like number 40 on the list. And it worked out, everybody. He was happy. They got one of the first units. They started using it immediately. But um, 
so I was trying to get as many people to test it as possible so I could, you know, find out what's wrong with it before you make a thousand of them mm -hmm. or a hundred of them because that's all we were planning to make. And um, Kenji Luster calls me up because he'd seen the prototype and he'd tested it and everything. And he says, I'm doing this feature. It's in downtown L.A. And if you can get down here today, we can do some testing. Mm -hmm. And I said, great. I had a meeting in the morning. I had lunch with business associates and I head down there. So I get down there. They're just, they're at lunch and I'm like already ate. So I'll just sit here and we're chatting. And I notice there's quite a few attractive women around and they're all wearing lab coats. And I'm going, oh, it must be a science fiction picture. They must be, except that they're like wearing goth makeup and fishnet stockings. I'm like, I don't know what lab they're working in, but I want to work there. So <laughs> We go inside, and it's me, uh, Kenji Lester, and Tom Gleason was mm -hmm. his first AC. Tom's a great guy. So we're off in the corner. It turned out they had rented this room, this area in a theater, a big second floor, almost like a ballroom, very long and rectangular, and they had made it into some kind of devil worshippers nightclub. Turned out it was a movie called Soul Keeper, which Ron Baldwin actually worked on. He's in the credits for it. So we're off in the corner where he's got this, the stand for the steady cam, and we hook it all up, and I show them how you calibrate it, and they're really happy because the calibration was a huge improvement over any of the other systems out there because, like, a Sites or a WR-64, you had to set one endpoint, then you had to set the other endpoint, then you had to go back and reset the first endpoint because when you set the second endpoint, it changed the first endpoint. So you'd have to go back and reset the first endpoint. Then mm -hmm. you'd have to go and reset the second endpoint. So you had to go through this process like three iterations mm -hmm. till you actually got it calibrated. And with the B and you had to do it with a handset while you were at the receiver at the camera. Mm -hmm. With the BFD, you didn't use the handset at all. You just calibrated at the receiver. Mm -hmm. And you set one endpoint, set the other endpoint, and you were done. It was so fast. To this day, you can manually calibrate an analog BFD faster then say a Preston will calibrate itself automatically. Just because a person can run the motor at high speed right up to the end and then just inch it into the end. Yep, you're and right. And do the other I end. remember doing it. Because yeah, I've, I've seen guys do it. And uh, so we, we got it all set up. And Tom did this, Tom Gleason did this thing where he put the handset up so that the knob was where the knob of a mechanical follow focus would be. On, with a mechanical follow focus and you know he turns the knob on the transmitter and the motor turns just like it's a mechanical follow focus mm -hmm. except then he just pulls the transmitter away and it's like a mechanical follow focus that you can take the knob with you anywhere and it was so fast and so responsive and so easy to use so we're all standing around the camera i've got my back to the set kenji's got his back to the wall and we're talking and kenji looks past me for a second, he says, real slowly and very casually, turn around and look behind yourself. And I'm like, okay. And I turn around and look. And, and arm's length away from me is a very attractive, blonde, young woman wearing shoes and nothing else. <laughs> and she's talking to an extremely attractive young Asian woman who is wearing shoes 
and nothing else. But how kind of movie was Kenji working on? Well, the idea was this was a devil worshippers nightclub, so they brought in like six strippers uh-huh. and had them stand around naked okay. as props, basically. Gotcha. And I look over and there's two more over here and there's two more over here. And I'm like, huh, okay. So we, we could do the shot. And at one point where I'm hiding in the corner is going to be in the shot. So I have to go stand over on the other side of the set. So I'm over standing with the grips and they're like, so are we getting paid for this today? Because if we're not, I have no problem with it. But I'm just wondering if we're going to get paid to stand around and look at naked women all day. And the other guy goes, I don't know. But if they want to not pay us to do it again tomorrow, I'm okay with that too. <laughs> right. And that was, the, that was the only time for that. And when I went back on Hollow Man to deliver Mark his unit, uh-huh. I walked into the underground lab set. No, no, no Mark's in the soundstage across the way. So I walk across the soundstage and to another soundstage. And there's this huge construction made out of wood. And, you know, normally when they brace a wall or something, there's like a two by four truss holding it up every four or six feet apart. This thing had two by four trusses, I swear, eight inches apart, Mm -hmm. hundreds of them. And I'm like, what in God's name is this? And there was a set of stairs and I walk up the stairs and they had built in a soundstage a swimming pool. Mm. A complete copy of one that was in the backyard of somebody's house that they had used at the beginning of the movie Mm -hmm. because they were doing this shot where invisible Kevin Bacon dives into the pool and he's a Kevin Bacon shaped bubble swimming through the water Mm -hmm. and he grabs somebody and, and kills them. And they, in order to do the CGI, they needed to have a techno crane moving the camera so they could record all the movements. So rather than fly everybody back to the East Coast where they had done the original shots, they had built a complete functional swimming pool on the soundstage. So I'm like, God, they must be just pouring money into this movie. And then that was also the, the elevator shaft attached to the right, parking structure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, That movie was a huge flop, wasn't it? It eventually made its money back. It, it didn't really? It, yeah. It didn't, you know, on the overseas markets, They, no matter how bad a movie bombs in the United States, there's always somebody in another country that'll watch it. For, That's true. Where they don't have television. And uh, but and it got it got good reviews from users. The critics didn't like it. I right. liked it. I thought it was a good movie. But yeah, it tanked at the box office here in the United States. But they made a sequel to it too. So did they really? Yeah, starring uh, oh, I can't what's the name? Direct a video. Uh, I don't know. I saw it on the Sci Fi Channel, so maybe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if it if it wasn't Kevin Bacon, it might have been Direct a Video. Yeah. <laughs> but I got to That's see funny. walking around on the set. I got to see Kevin Bacon walk by, completely painted green from head to toe. <laughs> well, he was wearing green tights, and yeah, like a green unitard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, they had dyed his hair green and painted his face green so mm-hmm. they could make him invisible. But right, right, right. That's yeah. crazy. Um, I, I was going to ask you: You were at CP what years? Cinema Ninety products. through ninety-seven. 90 through 97. Okay. So you were, you came in during the 3A days. Yes. 
As a matter of fact, I worked on the design of the Master Series, which was the 3A replacement. Right. You know, one of the weird things about... There's the still... There's a Master Series sitting in that case over there. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did the electronics for that. Yeah, yeah. One of the weird things about the 3A that people don't understand is the reason it was the way it was as far as its configuration with the monitor and then the armored cables that ran down to the base was because the electronics in the 3A were the same electronics that were in the Model 1. Right. The guy who designed him, a guy named Bob August, who is a really good electronics engineer but completely self-taught, when he did all the electronics for the CP16 film camera, news camera, yeah, and um, he was the first person to ever make a camera motor run under crystal control, so they didn't have to connect the... He was the very first one? Yep. Really? Yep. Huh. Got an Academy Award for it. So they didn't have to connect the film camera to the sound recorder so that the variations in speed in the film camera would be tracked by the audio, audio recorder. So the sound in the picture would stay in sync because if you don't crystal control something, the speed's yeah, going to vary. Film cameras were all crystal controlled and now they've gone back to locket boxes and whatever to make them. They have to do that all the time to sync yeah. them and stuff. Um, but... but uh, but we, you said he won an Academy Award. Didn't didn't you win a technical? I have an, a technical achievement Academy Award, but that was for key code. It wasn't for anything steady cam or camera. What key, key code? Key code is in order to match the negatives to the print. When you would you know shoot a negative, you would print it. You would edit the print. Well, you need to go back and find the negative that matches that print, so mm -hmm. you can make a negative that matches the edited cut. Mm -hmm. Um, every foot on a piece of film on the very edge is printed what's called a key number. And that number is unique. And like there, it's two digits which identify the manufacturer and the stock type. And then uh, like, like 12, every frame has it? No, every foot. Every foot, okay. Yeah. So after, in the old days, they would do this where they would cut up a print with the old movieolas and the, you know, guys cutting and snipping and taping things together sure after they had the edit they wanted the cut they wanted somebody would have to go through that and write down at every splice the last key number plus how many frames it was from the splice right and the next key number and how many frames away it was from the splice so they could go back and find the negative this is the that exact cut yeah. right well the problem was when you went to video Everybody wanted to edit on video, but the problem is when you go from film to video, those key numbers don't wind up anywhere in the video. Mm. So how do you, after you do a video So they edit, wanted to edit on video and then come back and do the cut, exactly. the negative cut. Okay, got so it. So how do you get the key numbers into the video? And the solution was when you put the key number on the film, you put it on there as a regular readable number and you put it on there as a barcode. Mm -hmm. And you put a barcode reader on the telecine transfer machine so that when the film is translated always from knows. film to video, that number is read off the, off the film and put into the interlace between the frames of the video image. So you can extract the key numbers that match the film from the video edit, yeah. just like you would do from a film edit. And Cinema Products made the uh, machines to do that called a key code reader. So that was a big deal for for editing for yeah. Telecine. Yeah, suites, for Telecine right? transfer. They all, yeah, they all, all bought the them. post production houses bought them, and then they wanted to do the same thing with these little sink blocks 
that when they're trying to find a particular piece of film, some poor schlub has to sit there with a couple of rewinders, cranking it through this little thing called a sink block, which is just basically a big wheel with teeth around it that counts feet. So they could find, they'd look up the first number, because if it's, say, ed, uh, a first transfer off of the uh, negative, the key numbers transfer to the print. So the print has exactly the same key numbers as the negative do. So you can crank through manually and you can find those numbers. And we built a version of the key code reader that would attach to a sync block, and it was called the sync reader. Mm. That's what I got an Academy Award for. But it was, you know, what it was was the decision was made that... Well, who, whose name was on it? Yours and... Mine who? and Ed DiGiulio's. And Ed DiGiulio. Just two of you. Yeah, what they did was rather that... Because there were like three different companies making key code type stuff. Kodak got an award for coming up with this barcode key code. And Cinema Products and RIM, the company which makes um, the BlackBerry... This was when RIM was like 12 guys in an industrial unit in Canada before they came up with the BlackBerry and became one of the biggest companies in Canada. And Everts, which did, uh, also did They did sound something. stuff. Well, they did all kinds of editing stuff and sync converters. I remember seeing their, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they just decided rather than say any one company deserves it more than anybody else, they just gave everybody who was involved in it an award. Okay. So, so CP got one and you, CP, you guys. I got then... one with Ed for that. And I also got to receive the Emmy Engineering Award for the company mm. because the Emmy and the Academy both gave them awards At for the this technical technology. So you got to go to the Technical Emmys is what I got to go to the Technical Emmys and oh, the Technical cool. Academy Award. Yeah. Oh, cool. Nerd Night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fun, though. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it turned out when they broadcast it, I didn't even watch it. Because when they did the regular Academy Awards, they usually do a little clip of people receiving um they're technical Emmys, and they actually picked me for some reason as one of the people. So I got calls from... My neighbor, who I rented the tux from, he had a clothing store. I rented a tux from him. He said, you were on TV last night. And I said, I was? Jeez, I didn't even watch it. That's so funny. And my funny. nephew called me up and said, I saw you on the Academy Awards. I'm like, did I look good? Yeah, okay. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Yeah. When you tell people you got an Academy Award, they, they're impressed, even if it was for something you had very little to do with, and you were one of a whole bunch of people who got an award for it. Yeah, but I mean, is it really true you had very little to do with it? For the Emmy, yes. For the Academy Award, no. It was pretty okay. much my project. Gotcha. Oh, cool. So, well, was Ed a, was was he an engineer? Yes, originally. Oh, I didn't know that. See, okay. what happened was didn't it, he get it, it, He yeah. I hear these names of people I didn't know, sure. and you hear them a lot. What Ed became like a salesperson or something at the company? No, or or what? What did he become? His final job was project development. He was vice president in charge of. Hell, I don't even know. He was the only <laughs> vice president we had, so he was But vice he wasn't president. engineering. He never really was in engineering. He oh. was the guy that figured out what products we should make and how we should make them, and then he okay. turned all the this detail is a more macro, over. more macro yeah. thing. Okay, See, got it. The, the whole history of cinema products is basically this. Ed came out to California looking for a job, or he may have actually gotten hired already. I'm not sure. And his first job was with Mitchell Camera. Because mm -hmm. at the time, Mitchell made about 
90% of the cameras in the world. They used to have a slogan on the side of their building that um, something like 90% of the movies in the world are shot on Mitchell cameras. Mm -hmm. And what year would this be? Uh, this would probably be 70s? Some, no, 60s. 60s, okay. And he got hired. So it was right when Panavision was starting to use yeah. Mitchell movements in their camera. Yeah. <laughs> Which they still do. There's a, Ed told me so many stories about Bob Gottschalk because Bob was always trying to hire Ed uh -huh. and then competing with him on different things. And, and Eric, in one of the previous podcasts, talked a lot about, well, to some, he talked some about, you know, the the competition between cinema products and Panavision over the Steadicam versus right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ver, uh, the Steadicam versus the Panaglide. Yeah, yeah. So um, Ed was vice president in charge of product development for Mitchell, and he wanted to design some new products. Uh -huh. And um, the the Mitchell family, the the member of the family who really started the company was dead, and the rest of the family just wanted keep the money coming in. So we don't change anything, right? Yeah. Right, right. Don't right, spend right. any money you don't have to. And they had a guy from the bank who was really running things. <laughs> from the bank? Yeah. Well, that's not that uncommon, really. Because, you know, the bank wanted to protect their investment, whatever amount of the company they owed. So mm. the guy from the bank was actually the one who hired Ed. And um, Ed said, we need, you know, everything is changing. We need to be coming up with new products or we're going to get left behind. And they didn't want, he actually said, if we're not going to develop any new products, we should get a chisel and just go outside and chisel that sign off the side of the building because it's not going to be true anymore that 90% of the world's things are shot on Mitchell cameras. Cause right. Other companies are coming along and coming up with new things. Right. So they fired him. And the, he started Cinema Products, and the first product they came with, came up oh, with. Oh, he started it. Oh yeah, that was Ed's by company. himself. Yep, him. but he was the vice president. <laughs> no, no. Eventually, he was the vice president. Originally, he was the owner and president. It, I'll explain it. Okay, it's, got it's it. It's a relatively short story. Okay, got it. So he started the company, and the first product they came up with was a way to uh, reflex a Mitchell camera, so you could see what the lens saw through mm -hmm. the eyepiece because the original cameras didn't work that way right they had the old rack over thing and yeah, yeah, yeah. blah 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 so ed came up with a thing called a pellicle reflex which was basically a beam splitter mm -hmm. that allowed you to see through the eyepiece what the lens saw and mm -hmm. they were reflexing mitchell cameras and then the cp16 came along he saw that there was a huge need for a uh, news camera, a 16 millimeter news camera that was designed to be a news camera. Mm -hmm. And they tried to buy the movement from Walter Bach at Bach Oricon, but for some reason he just wasn't interested in building them and selling them. And he hadn't patented it, so they just reverse engineered it. And the CP16 took off like a house on fire because you could record sound in the camera. Probably you, their best selling product ever. Oh, huh? they they were selling 20 cameras a month. Yeah. I mean, the money was just rolling in. No, I worked in news in Virginia, and the guys, the old school guys who had been there for a long time had shot on CP16s. Mm -hmm. And I've shot on C... I had a CP16 on my rig once. They had a CP16... It's the most complicated threading ever. <laughs> 
Oh, they made the gizmo was even worse, but that's a different. Oh, the story. gizmo! I remember the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the GSMO gun yeah. sight man operated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that the threading on that was apparently even worse. Frightening. It was so bad. Some people claimed that they couldn't load it. That it was impossible. Yeah, and it wasn't. It was just in, extremely complex. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the company became a big hit. Money's rolling in. And there's a company back east, I believe it was called Prince, and they made coffee. And apparently the owners of the company, the Prince brothers, were looking to diversify. So they bought cinema products from Ed for a million plus back when a million was a lot of money. Ten million now or yeah, something or more. Maybe. Probably more, yeah. And but the deal was Ed had to stay on and run the company for a salary, which was fine with Ed, because you know, I asked Ed, are you ever gonna retire? And he said, If I didn't come into work every day, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. I don't have that problem. I have lots of things I would rather do than work. Right. For, right, right, right. But Ed was just like, you know, I need to work because it gives me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So he ran the company for years. Everything was going great right up until videotape came along and portable video cameras. Mm -hmm. And he said we went from selling 20 cameras a month to selling none. Mm -hmm. So the company was going bankrupt. So he bought the company back from the King brother or Prince Brothers for $1. Oh, wow. Because they were just going to close it. Uh-huh. So they sold it back to him for $1 to get out from under. And they did all kinds of things for years to try and keep the company afloat. They did a, an editing table, a 16-millimeter editing table. Right. They did. They were the first ones to introduce Ikigami cameras to the United States. And I, I, Oh, they like licensed them or whatever? They were the first distributor for Ikigami cameras. Really? They were the first. That's they, funny. Ed went to Japan, found this camera company. They were making cameras. Does he still make cameras? I don't know if they do or not, but I'll, one interesting bit of trivia, the Ikigami cameras were all HL something, or at least all the original ones were like HL85, HL whatever. HL stood for handy looky, which was their way of saying that's a portable camera you can carry with you. No so way, they, really? Yeah, HL stood for handy looky. Handy looky. Yep. Oh my God. It sounds There's racist. There's probably six people on earth who know that. Fact. Really? Yeah. But Ed, Ed told me, he goes, yep, HL was handy looky. And they did, oh God, I can't even think Why of Why would the, the Japanese things. name it that? I don't know. Probably because the one person they had who spoke any English spoke some version of English that's not well, But why the did they name it. it in English? I don't, anyway, that's a, that's a whole yeah. different thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so confused by that. <laughs> um, and, 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 yeah, so, so. So they were doing anything to keep the company yeah, alive. I gotcha. And then Garrett Brown came along with the Steadicam and he took it to Panavision and Panavision said politely, we're not interested. And the minute the door closed behind him, immediately began it. trying to figure out how he did it. Right. And he came to Cinema Products and Ed said, yeah, we're very much interested in this. And they worked out a um, This was when Ed was the owner. No. What it had, well, yes, Ed was the owner at that time. I'm sorry, I got to keep track of when he owned it and when he didn't own it. Uh-huh. So they did the steady cam, and it slowly began to take shape and, and grow. And Panavision, Bob Gottschalk died. And Warner Brothers owned a big piece of the company. So they needed to put somebody in charge of the company who understood something about technology. And they picked um, Jack Holtzman, the guy who had started Electro Records. Mm -hmm. Because they had bought Electro Records. So Jack was 
on their payroll. And I don't know what he was doing, but they decided Jack would be a good guy to run Panavision. And so he was running Panavision for a while. And Garrett Brown came up with the Steadicam JR or the Steadicam Junior, depending on who you talk. And there's a lot of stories about whether it's the JR or the Junior. And I won't bore you with those stories because they are really boring. But <laughs> the, at the time, there was something like 50,000 handheld video cameras being sold every month. And everybody who was buying them was finding out that you can't shoot anything hand-holding them and move or it gets so shaky and distracting. It's the old um, makes you want to throw up after watching a few minutes of it. So Garrett came up with his little miniature steady cam for those cameras. And uh, Jack Holtzman saw it and thought, wow, that could be a really game-changing product. So Jack was a member of this thing called the Bakke Group, which was held uh, headed by John Bakke, who was the former president of CPS, CBS, who had left. And basically, he and a bunch of similarly rich people pooled their money. And uh -huh. They were buying newspapers and magazines and anything, any business they thought could turn a profit. Uh -huh. They saw this and thought, wow, this could be a huge deal. So they bought cinema products. And they put Jack Holtzman in charge. He quit at Panavision, and he was the president of Cinema Products, and Ed DiGiulio was the vice president. When would this have been? 89, I think. Oh, okay. 88, 89. Gotcha. So at that point, Jack ran the company, but he knew nothing about running a manufacturing company. And Ed made all the technical decisions and came up with the new products. Mm -hmm. And they poured a bunch of money into uh, developing I didn't realize the JR. the JR was in the 80s. It's crazy. Uh, 90, really. It came out. Okay. It, it hit production in 1990. Mm. They developed it in like 89. And Cinema Products had never done a product like the JR before. So they wound up blowing a lot of money in the development. It was like a retail product as opposed yeah, to... Yeah. And right. the thing was, everything on it was injection molded. And the thing about injection molded molds are they're incredibly expensive to make and incredibly expensive to modify. Mm -hmm. And they were changing the designs on a weekly basis practically and every time they would change the design making new injection molds they'd have to go out to the molding guys and have them change the mold and it just sucked up a ton of money mm. so they eventually did come out with a product but they had a guy in charge of manufacturing who I won't mention and he had no idea how to do manufacturing and is that who I think it is? Um, his name rhymes with Rick oh no, Rick. No, <laughs> it's the, no, it's I, not the guy I was thinking of. It's the guy before the guy you were thinking. Ah, uh, okay. And he was a very <laughs> nice guy. He didn't know how to run manufacturing, and he never would fire anybody for any reason. And uh -huh. a lot of the employees figured this out, so uh -huh. they just began to take, take advantage, advantage of it and started just stealing from the company like Ooh. crazy. They would act. One guy would actually back his pickup truck to the loading dock every Friday and load it up with JRs and just drive off with them because there was Jeez. nobody to stop them and he wouldn't get in any trouble for doing it if they'd been found out. One girl whose job was to make assemble the boxes the JRs went into would assemble enough boxes to build a wall she could hide behind and then go to sleep. 
and oh. it, it just it, it, there was no quality control over yeah, production yeah, gotcha. whatsoever so they blew through a whole bunch of money and so then the group decided to put Ron Lenny in charge and Ron Lenny was a money man he really didn't know anything about running a manufacturing company either. Jack left. Ron Lenny was put in charge. And, you know, Ron's decision was we need to diversify away from Steadicam. We can't be just the Steadicam company. We need to have other product lines. And pretty much every other product line they did tanked for one reason or another because nobody at the top was managing the products to make sure one of the things they were trying to do was for one of the helicopter companies was to make a film magazine this had always been one of Ed's dreams was to make a film magazine that as the film fled fed from the supply side to the take-up side the reels would move so the center of gravity never changed which is really important for helicopters because if you're shooting film and you've got a gyroscopic platform that the camera's on as the film moves, it changes the center of gravity and the camera starts to tilt. So you have to somehow compensate for that. And they did with moving weights in the system to compensate for it, but it was really crude and unsatisfactory. So. And super expensive, I'm yeah. sure. But the thing was, they never set out. So the, the helicopter camera platform manufacturer agreed to fund the development of this. But there was never any specification of how much the center of gravity was actually allowed to change. So the guy from their end was always saying, well, it's got to be zero. And the guy from our end was saying, it can't be zero. If you take a film core, which has got a slot in it, and rotate it 180 degrees, its center of gravity changes. Not much, but its center of gravity does change just because the slot no, moving from one side to the other changes it. Yeah. And, you know... Our guys are trying to say, well, how much is acceptable? And their side is saying zero. zero. And you're going, it can't ever be zero. Yeah, it could never it. be yeah. zero. Right. So, so this represents, it sounds like a, a lot of their products went through this kind of shit. Yeah. Because nobody was dealing with it. Exactly. There was right. no... It's engineers talking to engineers. Yeah. Which isn't always the best And nobody thing. talking to the customers. I mean, right. I was in charge of a project. It's actually what made me quit was I was in charge of a project where Sony was really trying to push HD because they were really the only company that had HD cameras and they had spent a fortune on HD technology. What year was this? Uh, about 92. Right. No, no, no. It would be later. It was about 95. Mm -hmm. And nobody had a machine that could transfer film into HD any faster than two frames a second. Aerie had one called the Aerie Scanner or something like that where it would advance the film one frame, scan it for two seconds, then advance it one frame, scan it for two seconds. Well, that's incredibly slow, time-consuming, and costly. So Sony said, look, we've got HD cameras. If mm -hmm. we can just take a camera, point it at a piece of film, run the film and the camera at the same rate, we can transfer film at real time. So... They hired us to do it because we were doing the uh, show scans. Essentially to create a telecine machine. Yeah. And they would provide all the video and all of that. All we had to do was provide the film transport. And since we were already making 65 millimeter cameras or projectors for show scan, which used an electronic pull down instead of a mechanism pull down, mm -hmm. we just had to adapt that. And 
it would have gone great if they had ever given me the personnel that when they asked me to plan the whole thing, I had said we needed. And they never did. So we just kept getting farther and farther behind. Sony kept getting more and more pissed off. I'd have to meet with Sony and they'd say, well, where are we this week? You know, and I'm like, well, basically we are where we are two weeks ago because nothing has happened since then. And they said, well, this was supposed to have been solved. And I'm like, yeah, but I didn't have any engineers to work on it because they didn't give me any. And after a while, they started saying things. Like, and I was being told by the president, just tell them whatever they want to hear. And, you know, that goes against everything I believe as an engineer. Who was who that? Ron, Ron Lenny? Lenny? Yeah. Right. Because they'd already paid up front for this. Oh, geez. So I'm, you know, going into these meetings and basically whatever they asked for, we'd say, yeah, we can do that. And, of course, two weeks later, we'd have none of it. And... I was in on a Sunday or a Saturday working for free, doing work a technician, just a wiring person was supposed to do. And I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, guys who own this company who couldn't on their best day do what I do every day as an engineer are making a fortune. And I'm in here working on a Saturday for free and being beat to shit by the customer because I'm being told to lie to them. Mm -hmm. And it's just like everybody I know who's really happy works for themselves, more or less. Mm -hmm. I mean, they either own their own business or they're consultants or like operators. I mean, yeah, you work on a job, but it's not a career per se on that one picture. You're going to be working on another one in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. So, And I'd been offered consulting jobs I'd had to turn down. So I said, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to become a consultant. Mm-hmm. What year was that? 97. We're, we're, we're like an hour and a half in, by the way. So, oh. so. so it, the, long story short, I quit. I became a consultant. Don Wetzel, who had done the same thing, said, don't be a consultant, manufacture a product. Right. So I was looking around for a product to manufacture, and I did my ICBM battery meter. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah. worked. Yeah, it was good. Was, all the battery companies were coming up with their own battery meters built into the battery. So, yeah. Then um, David Kimmelman said, you need to make, I really need this wireless follow focus. And I'm like, you know, if I could do it myself, not what they told me to do, just yeah, do yeah. it myself. I bet I could do it right. And I did. Cool. That's it. That was tw over 20 years ago. Uh, it was 20 years ago this year. Actually, this month, 20 years ago, was when I first decided to do it, to do the WRC4. It was 1999. You mean the BFD? I'm sorry. <laughs> the BFD. You can't yes. get that WRC4 no, no, out no, of your no. head. Oh, God. Those things will never... <sighs> well, it's funny. You brought along a WRC3, and yep. the thing looks like something out of World War II <laughs> <laughs> with a crazy an antenna. And I took photos. I'll have to remember to like put them yeah, up with, the it's, it's, with this podcast. But I'd never seen another one. Even Cinema Products didn't have one. Peter Abraham, back in uh, New York, had it somewhere in his garage. And he said, do you want this? And I said, yeah, I'd love to have it. So he mailed it out to me. And I've kept it always to terrify people like you could be using this <laughs> did that one work uh it did as long as nothing interrupted the signal between the transmitter and the receiver if anything interrupted the signal the motor slewed all the way to one end ah uh, so and as soon as the signal would reconnect they would go back, back to where they were supposed to but that basically meant 
the guy with the transmitter could never get more than about 10 feet away from the guy with... Because even though they're supposed to have a long range, there's so much garbage on a set that and anything that interrupted the signal, the motors would just turn all the way to one end. Not the end of the lens, the end of the motor. But they had clutches so they would just spin when they hit the end of the lens travel. Mm -hmm. But they were very slow and weak. Yeah. Anyway, so... Yeah, and the lenses were a lot stiffer. Well, as lenses got stiffer and stiffer, the weaknesses of those systems got more and more prevalent. I remember being told, like, people with sights putting two motors on. Yeah. Yet, like, ganging motors on. Yeah, there were, we made it. There was a special cable made so you could run two <laughs> M26P motors simultaneously to double the amount of drive to turn lenses. And that's where the. M1 was such a breakthrough was because it was so much more powerful than any other lens motor out there. I think to this day, it was probably the most powerful lens motor ever made. Seriously? Oh, yeah. That thing would take your fingers off. Even more than a DM1? Yep. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a monster. Because at the time Don designed it, that was what everybody wanted, was a more powerful motor. Right. Because everything else was too wimpy to drive lenses of course then when everything in the industry changed i don't think preston motors ever really had a problem did they um we actually it might have been the smaller preston motors when we were testing the m1 it was on a movie called uh the rundown with the rock and they said we really want to try your new motor because the preston motors we have won't turn this thing oh and the they might M1 have had DM2s it, or something. Yeah, I think they had DM2s. Yeah, which everybody likes because they're more compact and they're lighter, right. but they're they're less powerful. Yep. And now they have like they have like the DM1X or something uh, that's like a monster. I think there's a, a I don't even know. They have a couple of others that are something X that are t- smaller and and more powerful. Yeah, but then the whole industry changed as everything went to more video like lenses, which have no drag at all, and the motors are way overpowered for them. So now everybody wants smaller, lighter motors. Right. <laughs> But you can turn the torque down yes. on a lot of them. Uh, but, um, well, lenses in general, film lenses just got better. They got more, um, uh, um, instead of being each lens so unique, they got more... Um, uniform. Uniform, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. And where they all, they're all generally the same size. The, the, the focus ring is generally the same size. Yeah. It goes the same distance. And they're and they're they're well engineered and put together, so they all turn very easily. Well, what was the reason everybody needed more powerful motors was because Panavision was in deep financial trouble at the time in the mid late well early two thousands. It was when the whole thing where they went public with the stock and then the stock wasn't tank, that Ron, Ron Perlman, Perlman yeah, right. that whole era. So they had to cut way back on personnel, so they had nobody to maintain their equipment. So the lenses weren't getting lubed. So the lenses, Is that really? Where'd you hear that? Yep, from people at Panavision. Really? Yeah. The lenses just over time got stiffer and stiffer because nobody was maintaining them. That's why they needed more powerful motors, was to overcome the fact that nobody was lubing the lenses. What they really need is a couple of maintenance guys in yep. the lens department. Yep. Oh, that's funny. I had no idea that was yeah, it. That That's exactly the time frame where all of a sudden you needed really... Because there's no reason yeah. a lens should have a re, need a really powerful drive, except that the sliding surfaces inside the lens aren't being Too lubricated. much friction. Yep. That's funny. 
Yeah. Well, that guy owned, didn't he own Revlon? He owned Revlon. And uh, a toy company or something? Yeah. And then he got in real trouble because he tried to unload. He overpaid for the Panavision stock, and then he tried to unload it on others. Some This company that made additives that were sold to the tobacco companies that they put in cigarettes and it was a really profitable company and several of the people on the board of directors um, were employees of his or on board of directors and other companies so he tried to do a stock swap where he tried to unload all the Panavision stock on this other company uh-huh. and the people who owned the rest of the stock in the company said oh no you won't right and took him to court and blocked the sale and then he bought they basically bought back all of the Panavision stock so he didn't have to explain what he was doing to the stockholders anymore and then it just became this monolithic, nobody knew what was going on inside there. And I don't even know how it all played out. Yeah, I remember a time when a lot of people thought that they were gone. Yeah, you could go up there and there was like all these... I wasn't in L.A. yet. Oh. They had an office in Florida. I mean, I, I've just heard so many stories about it over the years. I It's probably a little before my time. I've just heard about it all. Well, the first couple it's probably times probably the I, mid mid to late nineties. Yeah, the first which, couple times I went up there, which was in the mid nineties, it was like a bustling. You know, there'd be all these prep bays, and every single one of them would be full, and there'd be people coming and going, and all of this. And the last time I went up there, which was in the early two thousands, it was like a ghost town. Mm. There was like one prep bay that had a couple of guys in it, and all the rest of them were empty. And you could you you could just walk down corridors with every office was empty. Hmm. And uh, they came out of it somehow into HD. I know they they came up with the Genesis, aka the genocide, which was an. Uh, well, the F nine hundred was before that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean that was Sony's, but the panabized one and yeah, they started, that got a lot of use. Yeah, they started buying a lot of it cameras sucked, made by other people and renting them, and quit developing their own products and just started renting other people's. I don't know what they do today. I haven't had any contact with them in years. Well, they have their own camera now. I I haven't used it yet. Um, But anyway, um, you know, and their 65 equipment is in super high demand. Mm. It's always working. Like people schedule their movies around because I don't know if it's still true like right now, but a couple of years ago, I remember hearing like, because they only have like one or two full sets of that 65 gear. Right. If you're going to go make a movie. Yeah. So movies schedule around when the camera's available. Yeah. That's when they shoot. Yeah. Um, like P.T. Anderson's movies and stuff shoot on that stuff. So um, uh, anyway, they've they've whether they restructured or they became smarter or whatever. I mean, the people over there are great now. So um and I love their their equipment. I think they got smarter with how they do a lot of stuff. And yeah. Whatever. So good for them. Yeah. Because a lot of people would miss them if they were gone. I know. Yeah, I they're would. a landmark. You know, they they. You can't think about film in the modern era without thinking about Panavision. Yeah, that's why it was so sad. I talked. Who else did I talk to about this? When they were throwing away all those golds in the dumpster. Out I've back. seen the picture. Yeah, the everybody's seen the, the photo. It's like if you would put out a few phone calls. Yeah, you could have made money and sold off all of those cameras. Yeah, well, I would have paid a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks just to have what bo- sure. an old body. It's not. I'm never going to use it. Yeah, but you know, you could have done what uh, Claremont Camera did with their cp35 make it a coffee table right <laughs> right yeah 
Well, I don't know if you've heard Matt's episode yet. You told me you're kind of going through a Matt Bass, but he bought no, like haven't. every Claremont case he could fit in his car and then went back for more. <laughs> There's one sitting right there. You see that yellow one? Oh, yeah. He gave it to me as a gift. It's a, a underwater housing case, but I use is, it for Matt Bass. Is Claremont still in business? No, they, they were went? sold to um, who bought them? Keslow? Yeah, I think Keslow bought them. Wow, because when I first I, I sold BFDs to both Keslow and sure. Claremont, and Claremont was like this huge company, and Keslow was like an industrial unit with like twelve guys working in it. Keslow made a big giant expansion. If you get a chance, go by their office. Um, it's like Culver. It's in Culver City. Mm-hmm. Wait, is that where it still is? I think so. That's where they were originally. They probably moved. Yeah, but they but they moved to a new, like, giant... I'm sure they had to expand, yeah. It's this really great building. They have beer in there. Ah. Go have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> See, Claremont was really friendly to Cinema Products, because when they started, Ed DiGiulio uh, gave them a huge line of credit, which allowed them to buy CP35 cameras, which was how they got started. Ah. And... So even when the, they couldn't rent the cameras anymore because they were too antiquated, they took one of them and put a glass top over it and used it as a coffee table in their waiting room. Perfect. And they always loved Ed. Yeah. He was a great guy. Miss huh. him every day. When did he... When 2004. Did he... Oh, it's been quite a while. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Uh, well, we've been, we've been blabbing away here for a while. Um Oh, I did want to ask you. Yeah. You sold how many BFDs? 2,700. 2,700 in 20, 20 years. years. Yep. So, okay. Uh, average is out to a little more than 100 a year. But oh, so, okay. We're not selling that many anymore, but... Right, the average is going to go lower. We started off like 100, 110 a year for like the first five years, and then it just every year crept up when when high def first started oh yeah we started selling like crazy and you know 130 150 180 200 i just remember you telling me you you kept thinking oh this this will die down any any day now and it just and the orders kept coming and coming and coming i remember at once you're like I just got an order from the Philippines, like 30, <laughs> 30 units, like, yeah. or, you know, or whatever. It was always like, Jesus, when will this end? <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's, it's, what really happened is several Chinese companies started seeing that they could make knockoffs of I like know. airy products. Oh. Yeah. And they just started a whole business making knockoffs uh-huh. of film products. And then, you know, as soon as they'd come up with a product that people would buy, it's like, okay, what else can we do? Uh-huh. And they just, you know, they started with the really common stuff. Like everybody's got lights, everybody's got tripods, everybody's got yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. And then uh-huh. it's like, okay, we got engineers. They're not doing anything. What else can we have them do? And they realized, well, follow focuses. We're right. buying our follow focuses from the United States. Let's do our own. And right. eventually they yeah. took me out. Well, you're not done yet, right? No, I shipped a repair yesterday. I'm doing. I still do cables and accessories. I mean, you can be kind of. It can be like a nice, like I, I don't know if you plan on starting another company or something, no. but you can kind of. I'm sliding. Can be like slowly, a partial retirement. Yeah, I'm sliding slowly into retirement. Yeah, and uh, when it's no longer profitable to do it, I'll quit doing it. But yeah, I got enough parts. To I mean, make you can do repairs BFD. for years and years and oh, years. Oh yeah. As long as people, you know, I had a customer who actually 
is a Chinese American who goes over and films in China all the time. And he says every time he pulls his BFD out of his case, all the guys in the crew go, oh, thank God, in Chinese, because it means they don't have to use the Chinese manufactured follow focus and they can use his BFD. Right. Because it's just, it's a way more reliable product because yeah. I spent a lot of time with guys on film sets making sure it did what they want. And the other products are like, you know, it has to, you turn the knob, the motor has to move in proportion. That's all they had to go on. So, you know, they had no idea of how things work on a film set, mm -hmm. what, you know, um, how if the battery dies, you have to be able to change it right away because it's, you know, $40,000 a minute or whatever it is to have all these people and all this rented equipment standing around. So I spent a lot of time on film sets getting feedback from guys so it was exactly what they wanted it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. You made a good product and you supported it. Yeah. And they Pretty don't. much. <laughs> and well, it, they make you know, a cheap knockoff. Yeah. And you get what you pay for. Yeah. You know. You pay, pay a few hundred dollars less and you get a piece of shit instead of yeah. paying the, you know, what it costs. Well, the other thing is resale value. Oh, BFDs. Sure. Oh. I mean, they may not sell for as much, you know, as they used to on resale, but there's always a market for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody is going to buy a used whatever one of the Chinese manufactured units because they're so cheap. You can just go buy a new one. Right, if you really want one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why would you bother? You know, all the, all the places that sell inexpensive video equipment sell those things. Because I'm sure they get a big discount from the manufacturer. Yeah, because they cost very, very little to make because of the where they're making them. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I understand. All right, well, we better go before we start like bashing everybody by name. Here. <laughs> before I forget what lawsuits are. But thanks for coming on. This oh. was like the most, I think this is by far the most technical episode because you were talking about all kinds well, of shit. I hope everybody found it interesting. And <laughs> I'd like to thank you because I think I'm the first person to be on your podcast who never actually worked on a movie. Oh yeah, you or are. a TV show. Everybody else has been on the production. You know, you got sure. behind the scenes. I'm from behind the behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm the guy. One of the guys who makes the equipment that you guys use. Yeah, behind yeah. the scenes. To well, make you know, honestly, I was going to ask you more about the times of Steadicam, but you know, you you talked about so much stuff, and you know, <laughs> well, no, everybody knows you because of the BFD. Yeah, nobody knows you because you did wiring on the Master Series. Probably you know. not. <laughs> right. And and I know you since, what, what uh, 2001, right? Yeah. And so, no, nobody knows me. Nobody know. knows me from key code either, but right. well, two guys at Sony, if they're still there, do. <laughs> and they probably curse me every day from the... Did you get the Academy Awards, but did you get the, um, did you get the trophy? No. Third, I have a they third make you class technical achievement, which is a certificate. You couldn't get a trophy? No. Oh, some of those they make you pay if you want it. Yeah, the, the, there's the Performance Academy Awards. Everybody gets a trophy. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Technical, there's first class, which is a trophy, uh -huh. which Cinema Products got for the Steadicam. Right. Second class is a mini trophy on a plaque. <laughs> gotcha. Third class is a certificate, which you get in a folder. Right, right, right. But it's an Academy Award. God damn it. Good for you, and man. I tell everybody, I'm an Academy Award winner. Well, you're not lying. Hey, 
I was on TV. <laughs> That's true. You actually have, if not they, only do you have the certificate, but you have you have uh, video proof of it. I actually have, a, they videoed the Technical Achievement Awards and gave us all a copy. So I actually oh, have that's a nice too. Oh, good. It, yeah, yeah. Even though nobody has VCRs anymore. I do, but I have a, a VCR of the award ceremony. Knowing you, you probably have a quarter and a half inch, <laughs> one inch machine in I'll there. I'll have to somewhere. send it in somewhere and have them put it on DVD. Yeah, right. All right, man. Uh, thanks. Let's let's go get another drink and get some food. Something to eat. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks again to Jim Bartell for coming in and chatting with me, and thank you to Walter Clausen FX for their continued support, and thank you for listening. Catch you next time.